because I realized that the system was broken and it was broken at, at every level. And, and this is how much power a Canadian judge has and how much power the people who stand behind those judges at even at a higher level um, have as well, that they have the power to support them or to hold them accountable. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week, our episode revolves around Alison Bowen, who is an SRL who went through a pretty horrifying experience. Mm-hmm. A former SRL now, yes. Alison Bowen is a family, self-represented litigant who went through a very long and acrimonious divorce where there were issues over matrimonial property and over support and custody, so virtually everything. But the most difficult issue to resolve was the issue of custody and residence. And Things came to a head when the judge who had oversight of the case, Justice Brown, who we'll see is a very important figure in this story, he made an order that her then teenage son should relocate to live with his father, despite the fact that um, the custody assessment didn't support that and the young man himself didn't want to do that. Now, the happy part of the story is that the young man in question managed to negotiate between his parents and ended up making an agreement that he would stay with his mom but visit with his dad. So that got resolved. But as I said, this had been a very acrimonious case and there had been many, many, many hearings before Justice Brown where Alison had appeared self-represented and her husband had appeared on and off with and without representation. The core of the issue here is that Alison felt from a very early stage that she was disliked by this judge and that everything that she put forward was regarded in a very negative light and conversely everything that her husband, to be ex, put forward was seen in a very, very positive light. Uh, And I have read many of these judgments, and this is a conclusion that is inescapable, I think, to anybody who reads this material. So Alison actually made a complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council, which gets mentioned in the interview, uh, a complaint that, in fact, didn't result in, in any action. But she was asking for Justice Brown to be removed from hearing her case, but he was not. And even once this agreement had been made over the custody of the son, her ex continued to bring her back and complain about small, it's even difficult to figure out what exactly violations of the custody agreement, and to ask for the judge to imprison her for contempt. And I remember communicating with Alison and her mother, actually, in the weeks leading up to this this, uh, final appearance, where they were really scared about this idea. And I had been saying, you know, it really doesn't happen in Canada. We don't imprison 
family litigants, self-represented litigants. And in fact, what happened, as we'll see when this uh, conversation begins in a moment, was that Alison was sent to prison, to the Abbotsford Prison for Women, for one week for apparently contempt of court in relation to the custody agreement. So it's a, it's a, it's an emotional conversation, and it I think reflects the fact that Alison and I are still trying to make sense of this. So let's listen. Hello, Alison. It's Julie McFarlane calling. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I think that it's very important that people hear what happened to you. So I'm going to jump straight in here. Uh, a little bit of background. Um, my first contact with you was actually a message from your mother, uh, which I got after she heard me speak about the National Self-Representative Litigants Project on the CBC in Vancouver. And I remember the title of that email was A Cry for Help. And at that point, you'd been in litigation, in a very acrimonious litigation for three years. And the judge had just ordered your 13-year-old son to relocate to live with his dad, despite the fact your son said he didn't want to. But here's the sentence that struck me the most when I read that very articulate but very distressed message from your mom back in May 2013. She wrote this, in every court appearance, Justice Brown has made it very clear he neither respects nor believes Allison, whereas he also makes it very clear that he admires and believes her ex-husband and responds favorably to all of his requests. Now, that jumped right out at me, of course, because we believe, and I think in most part we're right to believe, we believe that judges in Canada are fair and they're unbiased, and they look at evidence, not whether or not they like people's personalities. So, Alison, could you start by talking a bit about why you felt Justice Brown wasn't treating you, responding to you in the same way as he was your ex-husband? What was his tone like? And, and when you came to gradually realize that this judge did not, let me put this in quotes, like you, what did you feel about this? Were you shocked? Confused? Um, thanks, Julie, for giving me the opportunity to do this. Um, my motivation is to uh, make sure that this uh, case is heard and uh, yeah. perhaps help anyone else out there who, who may be going through or have experienced the same, same kind of uh, uh, process that I went through. I absolutely went into court expecting to be treated um, with equality. Um, integrity and impartiality. Um, mm. Absolutely. I believed in our court system, our justice system. That was my belief system at the time. When did you first feel that there was this sort of very sympathetic, positive, um, it, almost enthusiastic attitude towards your ex-spouse, but a very negative attitude towards you? Right, right from the word go, um, Brown um, initiated uh, a conversation with the claimant um, because he'd asked him what he did for a living, um, which I thought was nice. I thought, this, oh, this is nice. The judge is talking mm. to us like human beings, you know. Mm. And he, so he instigated a conversation regarding his background in IT, and they went on to have a very pleasant conversation for about 15 minutes about 
information technology and Brown um, uh, expressed how much he had been interested in that and he'd like to know more about it and he asked um, the claimant a few questions about it and I thought, well, this is all getting a bit much. Can we move on with the reason why we're here? Because I can yes. see that they were beginning to establish a rapport um, yes. and I hadn't even had a, hadn't spoken yet. Right. Um, so that was, that was the very first... Um, so did he then turn to you and ask you what you did for a living and have a similar conversation? No. I know that there were many other hearings that followed this after the, the, the divorce trial because there continued to be issues um, around access and, and other financial issues. And I know because, as I say, I read all these judgments that the same trend of paying a great deal of attention to one party and very little to you, in fact, expressing sometimes outright hostility to you, continued. And I know because by this point we were in regular contact that jumping ahead to January 2015, after a number of further hearings, you decided to make a formal complaint about bias to the Canadian Judicial Council. And of course, you got an administrative response because, in fact, that process always takes a minimum of six months. So in the course of the next six months, you continued to appear before Justice Brown, and he continued to be the presiding judge, even though you've made a complaint about it. And you were still trying to work out in this whole process what was really the most important to you, of course, which was where your children were located and what would happen around their schooling and and the you know the relative roles that you and your ex would play in their lives and i remember um you know that you were very very concerned that there had been an order made that your son should relocate to move in with his dad. And actually, you know, in the way that kids have of sometimes sorting out problems better than adults do, he managed to figure out how to talk his dad out of that. Um, but what was so clear as you continued to appear and your ex continued to bring you back was that Justice Brown blamed you for that. He didn't accept that this was something that your son figured out for himself. Because the relocation hadn't taken place, because your son had managed to work it out with his dad, he'd arranged to have visits instead of actually relocating, which he didn't want to do. Um, your ex asked the court to imprison you for contempt. And in fact, this was written up in a Canadian lawyer article at the time, which I thought was an extraordinary breach of your children's privacy as well as your own. Now, this contempt application, to me at the time, seemed like it was just an extraordinary overreach. It was completely, you know, why would this ever happen? And then on June the 3rd, 2015, Justice Brown once again sided with your ex and ordered you to the Amsterdam Prison for Women and also slapped a publication ban on the ruling, no reasons given. And it was completely unclear. Anybody else can read this judgment. Um, it no longer has a publication ban. It was completely unclear what any basis for a contempt order was. And there was just a sort of vague reference to you having been opposed to the relocation order, which, of course, if you were a lawyer, is something that you would be being paid to do effectively on behalf of your client. But as a mother, apparently, that is not appropriate. 
So that day, I can't even imagine what it felt like to be taken down and transported to prison. I mean, I was in a state of complete shock about this. Is it is it okay to ask you to talk a little bit about what happened that day, Allison, and what the impact yeah. was? No, you know, as I said, my motivation for being here is to bring light to where there's darkness. Um, our system is broken. Uh, it, I was very much woken up um, through this experience. I mean, that's the positive outcome if you can look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was living in, a, in an illusion that we had a justice system that was there to to support us and to facilitate truth, um, mm-hmm. and that certainly was not my experience. So the day that um, I was taken to prison, um, I had to be at uh, Cranbrook Courthouse um, to report to the sheriff. Um, they put me in the back of a um, sheriff vehicle uh, with my ankles shackled and my hands handcuffed behind my back in a sealed back seat um, with another individual, another um, woman who was also um, handcuffed and shackled. I was then driven, it was about 30, 35 degrees, hot summer's day. We drove to Nelson, BC, so that was about a six-hour drive. Um, we got to the Nelson Courthouse. And, and you, uh, were, you were shackled that whole time? You were in this? Oh, absolutely, the whole time, yes. Yeah. yeah. Stayed overnight there for two nights in a city jailhouse, which was horrific. Yeah. Um, was then moved to the Kamloops. Cam oh, I'm sorry, that was for one night. Was then moved um, in the same manner um, to uh, Kamloops via uh, Vernon, B.C., I believe. Yeah. Um, treated with absolute dirt, the lowest form of society by the sheriffs at that location. Um, earlier that year, I had herniated a disc and was still recovering from that. The female sheriff that was reloading, oh, I'm not sure, maybe 15 to 20 um, individuals into now a van with uh, individual sealed uh, plexiglass units. Um, each individual, males and females, being squished into units with their uh, legs shackled, um, handcuffed behind their backs. She kept pushing me and telling me to hurry up, and I, I explained to her that I was um, in some pain and yes. was handcuffed and shackled. Um, and she just, she just literally physically pushed me um, to the point of nearly tripping and falling. Um, and I was horrified. I was horrified that this was the way that you were treated. Treated, um, yeah. As completely, I, I I didn't know this happened in Canada, to be honest with you. I was really shocked. It was Justice Brown who made the decision. It was he who had um, whatever evidence he was looking at, asking for you to not only be judged in contempt of the order uh, for the relocation, which, as I have said, it is completely unclear why you were in contempt. But he also made a decision to imprison you for contempt. This is what is so extraordinary about this. But the thing that's extraordinary, Julie, is in my mind, in my reality, in my world, there was no contempt. The mm. judge had evidence in front of him. He had an $8,000 forensic report, psychologist report, um, that stated it was in the best interest for the children to remain together with their mother. He had letters from the teachers, from the grandparents, from the friends mm. of the family. 
all stating that he remained with his mother. He had testimony from both of the children in court, in person, stating they wished to remain with their mother, but were happy to visit with their father. Mm. He had all that evidence in front of him, and yet still chose to speak to me in an accusatory manner, in an aggressive manner, in an emotional manner, which is not acknowledged by the CJC, the Canadian Judicial Council. Um, they said he remained calm and professional at all times. That is not the truth. Um, the last time I saw him prior to that sentencing day, um, I believe he said on June the 3rd, 2015, mm. um, he stormed out of the courtroom and he said in a very aggressive, emotional manner, you should have let your son go to Vancouver. You know, I remember very clearly, Alison, having had messages back and forth from you and from your mother originally. The weekend I sat down to read all the judgments um, in your case. This is all the different times. I think you mentioned that there were 25 hearings um, altogether, all the different times that you came to court. And... Um, it was a very depressing weekend. I have to say that, you know, I don't think I have ever read anything so shockingly biased um, in my you know, entire career as a legal scholar. And I remember feeling complete despair about this because I knew by this point that this had culminated in your incarceration. And I also knew that the Canadian Judicial Council uh, around a month after you had been sent to prison, uh, wrote back and said, as you have mentioned, that Justice Brown behaved professionally and there was no bias. So what, what do you think that this means for people who want to, as you did, say, I feel uncomfortable appearing before someone who appears to dislike me intensely and that's creating a bias in what they do? Well, it says to me that our system is broken, period. Would you recommend somebody to go to the Canadian Judicial Council? Because I know that you had hopes that that would actually resolve this for you. No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I literally tried every... Excuse me, every... Um, I tried every avenue of recourse to um, support my family to not. And, and for me, ultimately, it became a bigger picture because I realized that the system was broken and it was broken at, at every level. And, and this is how much power a Canadian judge has and how much power the people who stand behind those judges at even at a higher level um, have as well, that they have the power to support them or to hold them accountable. So I'm really not sure where you go with that other than what we're doing today, discussing it openly for the public to hear, for yes. um, the legal profession to hear and to decide, is this the Canada that we want to have? Because it's certainly not the one we're raised to believe um, that we exist in. It's an illusion. Alison, I know that you told me that your kids are doing really well. How are you doing two years later? Well, I survived, right? I survived. Um, there was many times when I didn't think I was going to. Um, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, but, uh, you know, you just have to 
find your your inner strength, step out of that space of being victim. Yeah. And, and realize that your your strength does come from within, and you have to trust trust that the truth will always prevail. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about interpersonal strength and a belief mm. in something greater than um, the current system, judicial systems um, that we have in place right now. And I think if we can hold that space for um, integrity, for humanity, um, and believe that we are empowered, that we're not victims, that we will crack um, the systems, the beliefs that are no longer serving us, and we'll move forward and we'll create a better society. Um, that's what's giving me hope right now. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a very inspiring message to put out there. Allison's story as an SRL is very extreme, but it's kind of, it's an extreme example of a lot of issues that SRLs come up against over and over again. And we hear all the time. Right, exactly. And one of those is this problem of, you know, people pay lawyers to advocate for their kids. Mm. But it seems as though often if an SRL does that, if they kind of, you know, passionately advocate for their kids, they're seen as stepping out of bounds. Yeah, I think think it's, it's such an interesting issue that we're really only starting to figure out. There is a, a real reaction against SRLs who come with a very impassioned, committed point of view, which without, because we don't make any judgments on the merits of these cases, without getting into the merits of Alison's case, it is clear that she came with a passionate and committed point of view. Mm-hmm. But something that is usually seen as a sign of professional competence and you know value for money in terms of lawyers being paid to be advocates is understood very differently when it's a self-represented litigant. And Mm -hmm. I think that we haven't yet figured out what kind of line people are expected to walk here. You know, we know that, for example, there's more and more discussion in the case law around self-represented litigants being vexatious in some way. And vexatious can also mean expressing your point of view rather loudly and maybe rather more often than the judge wanted to hear it. So how people walk that line is really difficult, I think, to figure out. What was clear in Alison's case was that the judge didn't like her. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should be very careful about any decision-making that is based on some sense of personal dislike. Mm-hmm. And this leads into another uh, issue that we wanted to talk about, which is um, kind of the question of whether or not it should be the same judge right. throughout. And in right. this case, of course, it was, mm. and that proved to be problematic for Allison, at least. Yes, it did. And this isn't actually the first case we've come across like this where a self-represented litigant will say to us, you know, I've now had six, eight, ten hearings in front of Justice X, and they clearly don't like me. Can I please get a different judge? Now, you know, the conventional wisdom amongst 
those of us who study family court processes is having a single judge is a much better thing because it enables them to become much more apprised of all the complexities and the nuances of the case. But this is another of those issues that where you have a self-represented litigant, we haven't quite thought this through. Mm. What if there is a personal reaction against this person, as it clearly was here, in which case it really does seem to taint the integrity of the whole process? Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, uh, you know, we we kind of talked about this this issue, and this is something that is a little bit unrelated to the issue of Allison being an SRL, but uh, I felt was important to bring up, which was the shocking element mm. in her case of the way she was treated mm. as a prisoner. Mm. I mean, let alone mm. the fact that she was a family SRL who was imprisoned for contempt. Like, that's shocking, of course, on its own. But just then after that, the way she was treated yeah, as a prisoner. Yeah, I know you really were shocked by it's that. It's horrifying. Yeah. And, to, you know, that this happens in Canada. And apparently this is standard practice. This is the way prisoners are treated so inhumanely is uh, absolutely horrifying. Yeah, I mean, Alison's description of what happened when she got thrown into the police van and, and actually transported to Abbotsford Prison for Women is really horrifying. And it's not something that I personally have heard a description of Mm-mm. before like that. And I think you were the same. And that was one of the reasons she was so struck by it. And this is out of public gaze, I guess. But it is pretty depressing to imagine that we cannot treat people no matter what they are convicted of with a greater degree of, of respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that this has given you and I both a little inspiration to perhaps think about some future podcasts that look more closely at access to justice issues in the penal system as well. It sure has. As a postscript to this story, we've highlighted Alison Bowen's case because imprisonment for contempt of court in a civil or family case is very unusual in Canada. Fines are much more common. A Canadian Judicial Council paper from 2001 recommends using even fines, but especially incarceration, for contempt in family cases very restrictively. The CJC paper quotes as follows from a 1994 case. Restraint is appropriate given the twin objectives of protecting both the best interests of the children and the administration of justice. Children are better off if their parents are not in jail or paying fines. The link to the complete CJC paper, intended as a guideline only, is posted on the podcast webpage. At NSRLP, we are only aware of one other case involving an SRL that resulted in a prison sentence for contempt. This is the case of Donald Best, who in 2010 was sentenced in absentia to three months in prison for contempt and served one month of this sentence in 2013. Mr. Best's complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council was dismissed, and he is now bringing an application for judicial review of his case. You can find further information on all of this, including Julie's blog post on Alison Bowen's case written the week after she was taken to prison, on our website. And in other news... Following the December 1st vote of the Law Society of Ontario's convocation to develop a new license to allow trained paralegals to offer some family law services, the Society has published details of the plan and a webcast of the debate on its website. 
This link and the others referenced in this episode can be found on our podcast webpage, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. Next week's guest is the former Mr. Justice Tom Cromwell from the Supreme Court of Canada. Tom Cromwell, as he is now known in civilian life, is talking to me about life after the Supreme Court, the work that he continues to do as the chair of the National Action Committee on Access to Justice, and his work in private practice. 